You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Many of you make it a practice to read through the entire Bible every year. I think that's an admirable goal. And obviously, we start in the book of Genesis. And we really enjoy reading Genesis because Genesis contains some of the best loved and, and best known stories from the Bible that we can remember. Starts out, obviously, with the creation. How in six days, by the, just the word of his mouth, God created everything that we see and created our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And, uh, and, then, and then we get to the fall, and obviously we, we know what that did for mankind, but we, we know that story well, how Eve was deceived and ate of the fruit and gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And uh, then we get to Noah and his ark and how the animals went in two by two, and then we, when we really dig in, we read that some of them went in by seven, and we wonder how that math works after doing odds and evens in, in elementary school. Um, and then we, we uh, read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, things they went through. We, we enjoy reading the, the story of the twins, Jacob and Esau, and and we know the story of how Jacob deceived his own father into believing that he was Esau. Uh, and we wonder how he got away with that. But uh, he, he was in, in uh, league with his own mother to make that deception uh, successful. We read about Joseph probably along with Daniel, my, one of my favorite characters in all of, of scripture and uh, uh, how he was given the coat of many colors and how his brothers got jealous and sold him into slavery into Egypt and the story continues until Joseph is actually one of the main rulers of all of Egypt and the brothers actually come and bow down to him as he had seen in a dream. But ranking right up there with these stories is the account in Genesis 22. The account where God tests Abraham by asking him to take his beloved son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. So we're going to read together Genesis 22, 1 through 19, this account. And from the pen of Moses we read, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, Abraham his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. We've read this story often, haven't we? And in the familiarity of these stories, we must never forget what, just, what we just read. This is God's word to us. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Please help our minds to be free of distraction. Help me as I preach to rely on the power of your spirit today because if you don't meet with us this morning, what we're doing here today is really for naught. It will not have any lasting importance if all we hear is the words of men 
I pray that we will hear the word of God and change as you would convict us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've read this account from Genesis, but a quick look at Jesus' words in John 8 are in order. Jesus is preaching a sermon. It's not necessarily what we think usually goes on in a sermon. Maybe you've been in a church where it has, where people get up and talk back to the pastor. We would find that very uncomfortable. We would probably be waiting for the ushers to come and remove such a person from from the uh, audience. Um, But when Jesus was preaching, that's exactly what was going on. He would... He would make a statement, he would make a point, and the religious leaders would talk back to him, would answer his point with a point of their own. And in John 8, Jesus is preaching about who he was and why he had been sent to earth from heaven by his Father, God. In the course of the sermon, the Pharisees mention that Abraham was their father, beginning a discussion which culminated here in John 8, verses 58 and 59 with Jesus' words, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him. A few verses earlier, John records Jesus saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, referring specifically to the covenant that God had made with Abraham that we read about in Genesis 15, a promise of a land, of a nation, and descendants like the stars of heaven in number. This blessing culminated with the statement, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Referring to our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham was in the birth of Isaac. Imagine the rejoicing in the hearts of Abraham and Sarah on that day. Isaac was the son of promise the son of their old age. And now their eyes were seeing him in the flesh. This is what God had asked Abraham to to believe simply by, by faith. And we read of this miraculous birth in Genesis 21, followed by God's instructing Abraham to send Ishmael away with Hagar, his mother. Perhaps Abraham's grief in sending away this firstborn son of his was perhaps due to his doubt that God was really able to use only Isaac to fulfill what he had promised. If one son was good, wouldn't two be better to ensure God's success in his plan? But once again, in Genesis 21, 12, God had reiterated to Abraham, Abraham, that in Isaac, your seed shall be called Isaac, 
whose name meant laughter, grew to be the joy of his parents. But in our text this morning, God gives a command that brought something other than laughter and rejoicing to Abraham. Now, you and I have the privilege of knowing all about this command. It was only a test. Abraham did not know that he was simply being tested by God. And we read here in our text in verse 2, Take now your son, this is commandment by God, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, Abraham was no stranger to tests by God. When we're first introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12, he's 75 years old. His name is Abram, and he's being called by God to leave the country where he lived, to move away from all of his relatives except for his nephew Lot, he took him with, and even his own immediate family, and he was to travel to the land that God would show him, the land of Canaan. And Abraham passed that test, and he passed many others, but we read that he failed many up to this point as well. But this was the ultimate test. Genesis 22 was the crowning event of Abraham's life where where the hope that up till now he'd been placing in a son, in a seed, we see it transitioning. Now who is he putting his hope in? He's putting his hope in God. If you like numbers, not the book of numbers, but numbers, God speaks audibly to Abraham over 30 times to this point. Genesis 22 records for us the last time God ever spoke to Abraham. And so God has instructed Abraham what to do, and the ball, so to speak, is in his court. He has a choice now. Do I obey God? Or do I go on my own? And do I lean on my own understanding? This is a, chase, a, a choice that you and I have, have to make every day. Can we trust God in every situation or not? Do we limit God and believe that our own thoughts, that what we think about the situation, questioning, did he really say that? That sounds like what the serpent said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we have this choice every day. We just celebrated Independence Day this week. July 4, 1776, the Second Continental Congress ratified the Declaration of Independence establishing the United States of America. But whenever a person believes the lie of Satan, that what God has said is not true, or he meant something else, or you don't have to believe him, he or she is making their own declaration of independence. They are establishing themselves yet again as the ruler of their lives, that they know more about how to make life work instead of trusting God and his perfect word. And this was the choice that Abraham had. 
no doubt as he thought through what God had commanded, he thought, but what about that promise that he gave me back then? What do I think about that? And in his unbelief, he had already tried to manipulate God's word in going to Hagar, who bore him Ishmael. But then Isaac had been born, and with that event came the promise, in Isaac your seed shall be called. But now God's asking him to kill Isaac. Kill this promised son. What was he to think now? Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us that he concluded that since God had promised that he would raise Isaac back to life. Where had Abraham gotten that idea? Was this even a possibility? Uh, the resurrection of somebody who had been dead, brought back to life? We don't read about that anywhere in Genesis up to this point. The closest we read to such an event is perhaps from the book of Job, who may have been a contemporary of Abraham, where Job says in Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So evidently the followers of Yahweh up to this point of Abraham receiving this command by God knew that there would be a final resurrection. Somehow they, that had been revealed to them. But for someone to come back to life who was previously dead on this earth, that was unheard of. So to what then do we attribute Abraham's faith. Once again, the New Testament helps us understand Abraham's thinking. Paul writes in Romans 4, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, Abraham had already seen something come back from the dead. He had seen it in his own life and in the womb of his wife, who was far too old to give birth to a child. And so Abraham was convinced that if God could do that once, if he could bring life from death, he could certainly do it again. Now to our human thinking, what do you think about this test that Abraham was going through? Seems a bit harsh. It seems to add some credence to those who say, I believe in the God of the New Testament He's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. But that God of the Old Testament, he seems to get pleasure out of being vindictive. He seems to love being unloving and harsh. 
But we're given a glimpse into God's heart by the literal Hebrew translation of the small word now in verse 2. God says, take, I beseech you, I pray, take your only son whom you love. One version translates this verse, please take your son, your unique son whom you love, Isaac, offer him as a burnt offering. One can't help but hear in God's pleading with Abraham echoes of Jesus' words centuries later to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. After receiving this command from God, we don't read that Abraham held a family meeting, that he shared with anyone, even his wife Sarah, what God had commanded. He, he, he didn't get clarification or a second opinion on what God may have meant. In fact, for us, when God has given us a clear command, it's dangerous, it's it's irresponsible to consult others on what God might have really been saying. In Galatians 1.15 through 17, we read of the Apostle Paul's call to ministry. He says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through grace, through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Imagine taking that to the Jewish council for advice. I'm wondering what God had really meant. I don't think they would have sent Paul. But he says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul followed Abraham's example lest the advice received be merely human logic and reasoning, which could very well have derailed the clear intent of God's command. If Abraham said anything to anyone, it seemed to be along the lines of what he told the two servants in verse 5. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. After all, the place of sacrifice would have been a familiar one to anyone who knew Abraham's story. Where was he supposed to do this sacrifice? In the land of Moriah. Where was that? It was in the land of Salem. Site of the future city of Jerusalem. This was a place that was ruled by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and priest of God Most High, who met Abraham in Genesis 14 and blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So Abraham rose early, put the saddle on the donkey, woke up his servants, woke Isaac up, split the wood, 
and left home for the three-day journey to Moriah. This would have been plenty of time for Abraham to contemplate on what God had really meant when he had commanded him to do this. And at any time, he could have turned around and gone back. After all, God had not revealed the reason why he was to do this. But that's the essence of faith, the evidence of things not seen. Bible teacher Thurman Wisdom, in his book, A Royal Destiny, said, Though consecration doesn't require full understanding of God's call, it is never thoughtless nor even primarily emotional. With careful thought, it counts the cost, though it doesn't concentrate on the cost. And Jesus said, So likewise, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And Abraham understood this by faith. And so I would disagree with most commentators who put undue emphasis on the dread, the foreboding going on in Abraham's thinking which as he approached Moriah and saw it afar off, he could barely stand it. He wanted to run. I believe any anxiousness Abraham may have felt upon hearing God's initial command had been replaced by a settled peace that God would come through in the end. Isaiah writes, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. On the final day of the journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place where he was to build the altar and sacrifice Isaac. And somewhere between verse 3 in our text and verse 9 we don't see that that conversation recorded but God gave Abraham the exact location for the sacrifice and Abraham is now alone with his son Isaac making their way to the place each step they took brought them closer to what seemed to to be the inevitable death of Isaac and where Abraham had already determined God will raise him back to life. But there was one person who needed to be convinced. That would have been the sacrifice. Isaac didn't know what was going on. He was even more in the dark than his father was. But we don't read it that he was anything but willing to go. And then there was a break in the silence in verse 7. Look, I don't know how he said that. He said, what's going on here? Or if he just said, you, you see this? Look, the, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
To travel on a three-day journey with the sacrifice in tow would have not been a normal practice. To purchase an animal closer to the place of sacrifice seemed to be what was normal, as it was in the New Testament when worshipers came from great distances to worship at the temple. But now, evidently, the last place where they could have, they had just passed Farmer Brown's farm. And he had a nice-looking sheep there, and they passed it by. Where was the burnt offering? And so that's what brought about the question. Abraham responded with these meaningful words. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. When Abraham uttered these words, he and Isaac would have been very near the Kidron Valley in close proximity to what would be called the Mount of Olives and the future Garden of Gethsemane east of Salem that was to be Jerusalem. Moriah means the Lord sees. Abraham's response to Isaac could be more literally rendered Elohim, the Lord, will be seeing to the Lamb for the offering. As cryptic as these words may have been in the ear of Isaac, they evidently were sufficient for him. And verse 8 concludes, so the two of them went together. And this climb would have taken about 20 minutes from the valley up to the top of where the sacrifice was to take place, which was where Solomon would eventually build his temple. Verse 9 says, Then they came to the place, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. I'm sure greater care in building an altar had ever taken place. When the realization occurred to Isaac that he was to be the sacrifice, we don't know. We don't know exactly in, this, in these, the, the timeline when that happened. Was it at this time when he was building the altar and laying the wood out that Abraham explained the command and his confidence in God's ability to raise him from the dead? We don't know. Like the dash between the birth and death dates on a tombstone, much information that we aren't privy to is contained in the simple semicolon in this verse. After he placed the wood in order, he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. But Isaac seemed to be willing throughout the whole process. His submission to his father's will is an example to us. Now you might wonder then, if he was so submissive, why did Abraham have to tie him up? Why did he have to bind him? Up to this point in time, the Bible doesn't record any instructions, specific instructions on preparing a sacrifice for a burnt offering. But we need to remember that the readers were later. They came later and they would have been reading the whole five books of the Bible, and they would have understood how a sacrifice 
was to be put on the altar based on what God had told Moses. And so they would have been reading it through those lenses. But I think the, build, the binding of Isaac had future significance as well. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us, yet John records then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And Matthew records that when appearing before Pilate, Jesus was bound. And now the time had come for Isaac to be killed. Abraham picks up the knife, raises it high above his head, prepares to plunge it into Isaac's torso and end the life of his beloved son. And then he heard his name, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your, la- your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The word withheld in this verse is used again in, chapter, in, in verse 16. It's translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as the word spare. You have not spared your son. And this is the word that Paul uses in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him? also freely give us all things. Perhaps when Abraham heard the voice of God, he heard it from behind him, which caused him to turn. And as he turned, there was the ram caught by its horns in the thicket. God's invisible hand had urged the ram up the mountain, had caused its horns to be entangled, in the thicket while not marring his body, which was important. You couldn't have a sacrifice that had any blemish on it. And more importantly, the lamb that would take Isaac's place, that would be his substitute. So Abraham releases Isaac and offers the ram in his place. We read already in verse 5 the words that Abraham had given to the servants. Wait here. Isaac and I will go. We're going to worship and we'll come back. Verse 14 shows us the conclusion of the worship. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Only those who are fully consecrated to the will of God will receive greater understanding of the word of God. Those who are fully consecrated to do his will are the ones that receive greater understanding of his word. Our text continues in verse 15, not just with a restatement of the terms of the covenant God had made with Abraham, but included this time was an oath where God binds himself to fulfill these words. 
perhaps this week you had to sign a contract. Or you sold something and they had to have it in writing. There's a fundamental admission in these contracts that we make with between individuals. In an ideal world, contracts would be unnecessary to prove one's honesty and integrity. But how often have we been disappointed when we thought it said one thing and the fine print said something totally different? So what are we to think of God who swears an oath that he really meant what he said? This is nothing but a demonstration of God's grace. That he would stoop to our weakness to seal a promise he's made. God is simply accommodating man because he's aware how unreliable man's word is. Hebrews 6 references this act, this promise made by God to Abraham in Genesis 22 where we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What two immutable things was the writer of Hebrews referring to when dealing with Abraham in our passage today? Well, first God had given his word. And he cannot lie. And that should have been enough. But he added a second one. He confirmed what he had said with an oath. So what bearing does that have on us today? Well, the songwriter put it this way. His oath, his covenant, his blood, which supports me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay on Christ. The solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What are some takeaways from today's message? Well, our, our our passage shows us perfection in four ways. 
We see today Abraham's example of perfect obedience. We never can prove the delights of God's love until all on the altar we lay. The favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. That's how Abraham obeyed. We see Isaac's perfect submission to his father's will. He had an understanding that with God, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we must not miss the reason Abraham gave for going ahead with God's plan. The perfect motivation for all of life is worship. Living a life that brings glory to God. And for everyone who's placed their faith and trust in Christ, we cannot miss the fact that this entire account account points to the perfect substitute. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I assume that everyone here today knows about Jesus. I think if, if I took a poll, everyone would say, I know about Jesus. The question is, does he know you? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, if you've not ever accepted that substitute, please don't continue to reject him. Or assume you don't need him. Consider your soul. It's the most important decision you will ever make. Your, your condition right now before God is one that, that is set, setting you up for an eternity in hell. Apart from him. Being judged for all eternity. But God loved you and he sent Jesus to be the Lamb of God, to take away your sin. Will you trust Him today? Shall we pray? Father, this is a story that we have known for a long time. But it points ahead to Jesus taking our place Uh, we, we deserve the place of judgment and punishment. We deserve the altar. But Jesus obeyed. He obeyed his Father's will and he came to suffer and bleed and die uh, that we might have redemption. He took our place. May we be continually thankful and help our obedience to reflect the thankfulness we have 
that Jesus was our substitute. May we submit to your will this week. May we submit to your sovereignty, knowing that you have a reason for all the things that we will face. And we can be thankful and content in those things. We ask that you would speak to our hearts as a result of what's been preached today. May we continue to grow to be more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.